Welcome to Bigger Pockets Money, show number 13. He asked me how much I made on our first date. <laughs> you can't oh. do that. <laughs> it's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench. I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing, Mindy? You know, Scott, I'm doing pretty good, but today is a very cold day. It snowed. I didn't pay attention to the weather, and it snowed like five or six inches up where I live, and it was kind of surprising, and the drive-in today was kind of bad. There was no bicycling today. No. I, uh, well, I don't bicycle anyway. <laughs> Nah, uh, but yeah, it was freezing. It took me forever to defrost my car. Miserable cold day here in Denver. However, yesterday it was 60 degrees or two days ago, it was 60 degrees. Yeah, it was like 65. I love how, and it was super windy. So you know that there's a big storm blowing in when there's super wind, but I still didn't put it together. And then I was surprised when I woke up the next morning. So enough about the weather. How weather does not affect our latest guest today though, right? Which is Tanya from Our Next Life, who has retired and- uh, and recorded the entire episode in her pajamas. Uh, her mouse onesie. Her mouse onesie, yes. It was one o'clock in the afternoon for her. And it sounded like she had been having a great day. So that's living the dream. That's exactly how I, I envision retirement. So I know this about Tanya. It didn't come out in the interview, but Tanya actually lives in a really beautiful house in Lake Tahoe, which she bought for like a dollar or something in 2011 at the very bottom of the market, the real estate market, you know, the recreation market, up by the ski resorts, up by the beach, those always fall first because those are like extraneous expenses. You don't need to have that house to live. So she found this smoke and deal and moved in. And I'm a little bit jealous. Have you been to Lake Tahoe? It's just gorgeous. No, I haven't been to Lake Tahoe. I've heard fantastic things, but I think we have some not maybe just as good stuff here in Colorado. So I've contented myself with that. Things I can drive to. For the- uh, what's the lake up there? I get it confused with Great Salt Lake. It's not Salt Lake City. It's not Lake Salt Lake. It's the Great Salt Lake. I, I don't know. Anyway, but that lake is beautiful. Isn't this the largest freshwater lake? Yeah, we do not have anything like that here in Colorado, which is a little tough. We do yeah. have some good lakes and some good mountain areas, but uh, not, yeah, not still in Reservoir. But yeah, I mean, this episode is a great talk for folks that earn high incomes. Tanya and her husband are double income, no kids. They lived in the high cost Los Angeles market for the beginning part of their career. And then they, of course, moved out to Lake Tahoe for the latter part. And she just crushed it with her career alongside her husband, kept their expenses at a manageable level and retired uh, right around their, I think she's a little under 40 and her husband might be a little over 40. Uh, Yes, I believe she's 38 and he is 41. Mm-hmm. I think this is just a great episode for you if you're interested, if you think your career has some high potential and how you can kind of parlay that into a early retirement if you're smart about things, even in a high cost of living area uh, somewhere around the country. And one point that I really loved that she made was she wasn't always frugal. She wasn't nope. always this super saver who never spent on anything. And she met this guy who was, and she's like, oh, I could do that. You don't have to always be financially perfect to attain this, this early retirement and this lifestyle, you can learn how to be frugal. They sustained a smart system of finance throughout their career and allowed their financial position to scale with their careers instead of buying themselves into higher and higher lifestyles as their careers progressed. 
But yeah. by no means, it doesn't sound like they were at any point ever really worried about that extra dollar if they wanted something or wanted to go on a trip or a nice dinner out, things like that. Yeah, they did not deprive themselves. And that's really important. That's one of the things that I hear from a lot of people is, oh, I could never live like that. Well, you don't have to. Personal finance is personal. So, you know, make it what you want it to be. Yep. Well, absolutely. So let's bring Tanya in and and hear straight from the horse's mouth. Okay. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. All right, Tanya, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, you guys, uh, so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. 
Well, let's start from the beginning. When did you kind of discover the concept of financial independence and how did you, you know, begin to move towards it? My husband, Mark, and I, I think have always had, even though we've worked really hard and and definitely did well in our careers, I think we did always have a little bit of like a, uh, we don't want to do this forever mentality. And had the kind of jobs where we could never unplug, could never be unreachable. And I think just really took a toll on us. Like it took a toll on our health and our mental health and our relationship. And so really from very early on, we've, we've been married almost 10 years now. We were together a few years before that, but we've always tried to think about ways like, how could we not work forever? How could we find a way out of having to do these careers till we die? And that was always just kind of a running joke. And then it was about six years ago when we really got serious about retiring early. And that came from just understanding some of the math. Um, A few years ago, a great book by Robert and Robin Charlton came out called How to Retire Early, a self-published book on Amazon that I love recommending to folks. And that really broke down a lot of their math. And once we saw that, we went like, oh yeah, we can totally do this. And so we started saving pretty boring approach, mostly just index fund investing and continuing to max out our 401k, that kind of thing. And yeah, so that was I think in total, we saved for six years, really four of that in a very focused way. So I have a question really quick before we get started down more of this. Did you and Mark discuss finances before you got married? Oh, we did. This is like a fun fact about Mark is he asked me how much I made on our first date. (laughs) You can't do that. (laughs) Um, I know he totally did that. (laughs) Did you make more? Was it a pass fail? No, I made like half of what he made. I mean, I am three years younger. And so when we started dating, I was, I think, 25 and he was 28. So those are kind of a big deal set of years in terms of earning. But yeah, no, he, I think, to be honest, it was him attempting to not be like anti-feminist and offering to pay for the date. <laughs> like a weird way of saying like, you're kind of broke. I can afford this. Let me pay for it um, without insulting like your status as a strong badass lady. But yeah, no, it, we we talked money from day one. What was your position going into the marriage? Or I guess like, at the time, what were you doing as a job? And then how did your finances evolve when, at the time you did get married? We actually are both totally anomalous in our generation of having had essentially the same job for our whole careers. So Mark just retired at almost 20 years, even though he's only 41. And I had 16 years in the same job. So We had those jobs when we met each other. That's how we met. And we kept them until we retired there. I would say before we got married, my finances were definitely not great. I financed a car at 100 percent, a brand new car and had some credit card debt, had a little bit of student loan debt, even though I'd had a really nice college scholarship. And so that was all stuff, though, that we really wanted to take care of before we got married. So I paid off all the debt. We saved some money together and we definitely viewed our finances as collective, even though we didn't technically combine anything until we got married, but we were for sure in it together. We weren't just splitting stuff 50-50, like Mark paid all the rent while I was paying off my debt, for example, so that I could hurry up and get that knocked out. And so, yeah, going into marriage, we, we went into it with no debt, although we bought a place in LA pretty quickly after. So then we took on some big debt and you know, just kind of went from there. But I do think talking about money openly and viewing it collectively from the get-go really did set us up to be able to get on an FI path. Okay. So you said you combined finances after you got married. 
uh, Derek Olson wrote a book with his wife called One Bed, One Checkbook. And I really believe that you should combine your finances because you're married, you're a cohesive unit now. I have had some good arguments on the other side. Did you ever consider not combining your finances or was it just always a done deal that you were going to do it? I just don't even think we would have gotten married if we weren't going to combine finances. We would have just, as we jokingly called it, lived in sin. Like there would have been no important reason to actually <laughs> physically tie the knot. And so, like, especially because we don't have kids, we've never really planned on having kids. So there isn't that same kind of legal imperative. And we live in California where we could get domestic partnership rights. Like I think for us, marriage was as much about the money piece as it was about the romantic love piece, because, you know, you just want to be able to operate as a unit and to be able to think of everything in a team sense. And that's not to say that that's the only way to have a healthy relationship or a healthy money relationship. But I think for us, it was never really a question. So it's, it sounds like outside of a few purchases, like a finance car in your 20s, you know, you, you really entered this marriage in a really strong financial position. What was the difference between being relatively good with finances and then aggressively pursuing financial freedom. When did that shift happen? And what was your kind of position going into it when that shift happened? It's funny. I actually would not say that I was particularly good at money. By the time that Mark and I got together, he was already really maxing out his 401k. So he was doing a lot better than I was. I think when we started dating, he maybe even had to talk me into saving enough in my 401k to get the employer match. Like I mm -hmm. was not uh, doing all the right stuff. And I have always been susceptible to, I would say, like I've never bought a lot of clothes, but I've often bought a lot of home stuff. For a long time, I actually had a DIY house blog and definitely had to like follow the trends and home decorating. Uh, so <laughs> I think for us, like what I love talking about is just the fact that I think you don't have to be naturally frugal or a naturally amazing saver to be able to retire early or to save for a big financial goal. I think it's just finding the right system for you. So this actually happened before we started pursuing FI, but I had discovered that if I had my paycheck split by my HR department and had some of it go into savings, I never missed that money. And that was me accidentally stumbling upon the concept of paying yourself first. And the concept of automation. And so I really just started ramping that up. And then Mark and I both did that together. Like I just started having my paycheck split and have that money increase each year. And I started doing more automated investing. So to me, it was really what I called hiding money from myself. Like if I didn't see it in my checking account, I didn't feel like I had it to spend. It wasn't that I was so motivated to save. I just like over time, Mark and I together started upping the amount that we were having hidden from us. And that got us to, you know, over time, constraining our lifestyle, it got us to a really massive savings rate without it feeling like we were actually saving anything. Okay. You touched on a couple of really great things. You don't have to be a natural saver. You don't have to be naturally frugal to embrace this idea. And that's really important because there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, I'm not frugal. So I guess I could never do that. You absolutely can. And I love that you said that. And also the hiding money from yourself if you're not a natural saver, if you're not naturally frugal, you don't miss what you've never had. So every time you get a bonus, you just put that back into your savings account. Or every time you get a raise, you up your savings to reflect that. So you're not getting anything different in your paycheck and you're just forcing yourself. I love that so much. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of what I call lifestyle stagnation, although I think that sounds really bad and boring. <laughs> it's really more just yeah, like- we need another name. <laughs> yeah, resist, it's resisting lifestyle inflation. But so like for the last 10 years of our career, we increased our automatic deductions 
at the end of every year when we got a raise and then we banked every bonus. And so we're living on what we'd earned 10 years prior, which was still plenty and was still very comfortable. But people forget that compounding doesn't just apply to your investments. It also applies to your earnings. And so if you get like a few percent a year pay increase over time, that stuff adds up. And if you can save it instead of spending it, it is crazy how fast you can save. You know, that's a really interesting point because a lot of uh, people are trying to pursue FI and they live in expensive markets. I think you mentioned Los Angeles is where all this was going on. And mm-hmm. yeah, it might seem really difficult right now to save a lot of money. But what you're talking about is, okay, over the course of a decade, you're forgetting that if you're in one of these areas and working at a career and giving it your all, as you guys clearly were, um, you both had very successful careers, you know, your earnings potential will go up. And if you can just maintain that same level of spending, you're automatically going to approach that high level of uh, high savings rate, which can make this all possible. Absolutely. I think that's totally true. So taking advantage of compounding in your income, which as you said, in high cost areas, you're much more likely to earn more. So you can take advantage of that. I think it's also creating kind of a culture with your social circles of not spending money. Like we moved six years ago from LA to Tahoe, which folks will go like, oh yeah, well, no wonder you saved quickly. You moved to a rural area. Like, well, actually Tahoe is the fourth (laughs) most expensive place in the country. It's not cheap here at all. A dozen organic eggs costs nine to twelve dollars. It costs a fortune. But the difference is in LA, if we went out to see friends, it would be a hundred dollars a person to go to a restaurant like pretty easily before anybody even batted an eyelash. Whereas here, people are much more likely to say, like, let's go for a hike or let's have a picnic at the park or let's do some things that are really cheap or free. And I think having that kind of a social circle and that sort of spending expectation with it has been a huge part of being able to save faster in the last six years. in and out Burger is not $100 a person. Oh, no, that's for sure true. But that (laughs) is problematic for someone like me who has celiac, which is also part of why our groceries cost so much. Yes, that's, I forgot about that. Yeah, do the lettuce wrap if you're like really dying for a burger. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, Tahoe isn't rural. It's just hard to get to. (laughs) It's actually, it's the most accessible ski area in the country other than maybe like the mountains around Salt Lake. I'm just doing a little tourist plug for my home region. And and there's no Costco. (laughs) Uh, There's Costco down the hill in Reno, which is only a half hour away. Oh, so be an eggs there, $12 a dozen. No, no, no. They're cheaper there. I'm talking about like up here in Tahoe. Yeah. (laughs) I was just thinking there must not be a Costco if things are so expensive, but go ahead. I digress. (laughs) So you were living in LA, which is not the most frugal place to live. What sort of income were you at versus what your expenses were, your housing, your, um, I mean, your fixed costs are pretty similar all around, except obviously in Lake Tahoe where it's way more expensive for eggs. But, you know, the cost of, (laughs) the cost of living in LA isn't that much different than the cost of living in Chicago or Denver in terms of like gas and eggs and bread and milk and like your general things, maybe gas. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. Gas is significantly more in California, but yeah, the other stuff in LA is pretty, pretty close. Although, yeah, there is just what we all call like the California surcharge. Everything's a little more for no reason, even though we grow all the food and we get all the gas (laughs) from the ports. But for some reason, it gets cheaper the farther it gets from here. Yes, that's definitely the law of supply and demand. So what sort of income were you making? Like top 10%, bottom 4%? I think in terms of household income, we were probably at that point in LA, like top 10%, both kind of low six figures. I'm, I'm trying to remember at what point I crossed into it because Mark was certainly in six figures like way earlier than I was. This is when you ended your career versus when you started, right? 
Yeah. Well, I think LA ended six years ago. So that, that would have been lower earnings at that point. But yeah, we both definitely ended in the six figure zone, but you know, not like wall street level six figures, just like (laughs) normal people, six figures. (laughs) No, that's awesome. So, so what you're saying is this approach is repeatable for folks that are in these, you know, expensive areas, as long as you're being reasonable with your spending, you know, you're not sacrificing everything. It doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were biking to work or, you know, living in the basement of a duplex or anything like that. You were living a, a, a pretty solid lifestyle, but working on your careers and allowing that to compound over the course of the better part of a decade, uh, maybe a little longer, including the time before you're married. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think it's the secrets of our success are not about massive scrimping or sacrificing. Like we have never been in the mustachian school of bike everywhere. We have two cars. We bought both of them brand new. I know a lot of people will slap my wrist for that. I know Mindy's like making a face right now. Um, <laughs> the same but, face she made when you were not contributing to your retirement account and getting the employer match. I, have I know. To say, both of my cars were bought brand new too. Currently. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, it's possible. The key, you know, but like, one of them is a 2004, the other is a 2012, and we will keep them both until they die. So I think that's an important difference. I think it's been about not splurging on stuff that doesn't bring us happiness. So like we have definitely splurged on some major things. I've re- blogged about this before. Like we spent a thousand dollars on one meal once at per se in New York and it was worth every penny and I don't regret it. Um, but that was like a thing we did once in our lives and not something we expect to do twice a year or something like that. And similarly, I own six pairs of skis, but I use them and they bring me happiness and I wouldn't spend money on trendy clothing or new shoes all the time or, you know, fancy handbags or like things that I don't know, other people spend money on. So it's for us been about kind of getting really focused on our why and what we were aiming for. And then that made it very easy to make the decisions on what to scale back so that it was never about like going from a big spending lifestyle to a scrimping one. It was about gradually trimming some of the stuff that didn't make us happy, but, but continuing to spend on the stuff that did like travel and skiing and outdoor stuff. Okay. So that's my mantra too. You, you don't worry about the things that don't make you happy. You save when you can, so you can spend on things that that really are important to you. But going back to you were making six figures, you weren't spending six figures. You were saving six figures. figures. You were saving six figures because you had dual income at this highway. And that's great. So, so, and when you went to that thousand dollar a person dinner, Total, total, not total. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) When you went to the $500 a person dinner, did Mm -hmm. you have to like not pay rent to do that? Did you not pay your utility bill? Well, you don't pay utility bills anyway. You keep your house at a balmy four, whatever (laughs) ridiculous temperature you keep your house at. But you were doing without to do this. And I think that's really important to make that distinction that there's, there are people that oh, well, I can't really afford my rent this month, but I'm going to go to the boat gambling or I got to get this new iPhone. You don't. You could have a flip phone or no phone. I mean, I'm not going to go down the road of saying like anybody who doesn't do what we're doing is is making bad decisions. I think everybody's doing their best under the circumstances. And I also think like this is a world where you kind of need a smartphone for a lot of jobs and need computer literacy and things like that. But we were in the very lucky position of earning more than we needed. And I think for others who are in a similar position, you can make the decision. You can decide, like, do we want to spend all the money now for immediate gratification or do we want to save it a little bit and get much bigger gratification just a little bit further down the road? I mean, like for us, it was I think if we had seen, let's say that a high savings rate would 
have let us retire in 20 years, I think it would have honestly been hard to make the decisions that we made and not splurge more than we did in the final years. But because it was such a short timeline, it was very easy to see that light at the end of the tunnel and to say like, okay, this is worth doing. And I think like, certainly I recognize not everybody could save in six or four years. And certainly not everyone can save in that kind of timeline in an expensive place. Not having kids for sure helped accelerate our progress. We also just got really lucky in that we were able to buy our house in Tahoe in 2011 at the bottom of the market. You know, that was just dumb luck. But I think you can still apply all the same principles and just put them in your own situation. And it might be a very different timeline, but it's still very, very possible to at a minimum secure or retire securely in your 60s, but probably to shave plenty of time off that timeline. I think it's fantastic. I think there's four ways to go through about this thing that I like to describe as the four ways to achieve financial freedom. You can save, you can just keep your income the same and save more of it. You can increase your income and keep your spending the same. You can invest to achieve greater returns on the capital that you've already accumulated, or you can create assets or businesses which produce passive income. All these ways work. You decided, it sounds like, to focus on we're going to live a happy lifestyle at a level that we are comfortable with. And then we're going to focus our energy on our careers and we're going to invest pretty passively in in index funds, that kind of stuff. It sounds like tax advantaged accounts, but then we're going to focus really heavily into our careers. And it sounds like you had some tremendous careers that were very successful over this time period and allowed you to scale. And that was how you got there. So can we maybe dive into that point, which if that's correct, can we dive into that career aspect? What do you think are some things that allowed you to, you and your husband to excel in your careers throughout this time period and advance your income that much? Yeah. And and I actually love the way that you broke that down into the four. And we really did a bit of each one is the, the true answer. But I think to your career question, irony is I actually think of one of the best career decisions I made as when I quit my side hustle, which I think is the opposite of what a lot of advice is focused on. And I'm completely grateful that I had my side hustle in my 20s. I taught yoga and spinning on the side in addition to working full-time or more than full-time. But I think there is a, a really important thing to notice. And that's when you hit the point in your career when a side hustle might actually be holding you back. And that's if you are focused on, you know, kind of a traditional career. Obviously, if you're doing something where you're focused on entrepreneurship or doing more of a gig deal, that might not apply. But I think for me, I hit a point when doing classes was forcing me to say no to travel, which was making me miss opportunities. And it was also, I think, just like holding me back and showing my commitment to the job and how dedicated I was. Like I was having to leave sometimes or say like, oh, sorry, I have to get off this call to go like teach my class. And being able to eliminate that from my life, I more than made up for it for the lost income with what I was able to add to my earnings. So that was a big one. I think, you know, part of it was just like really working hard and knowing that we were in careers that had earnings growth potential, which not every career has. I think if we hadn't been in jobs that we knew could continue to grow, we would have changed that. So some of it, you know, like we both got our jobs when we were in our early twenties. And I don't think that we both knew at the time, like, okay, these are jobs that are going to let us become financially independent in our thirties. But I think once we were clear that that's what we wanted, we would have made the change if, if we weren't in the right line of work. Maybe we already touched on this, but I can't remember if we mentioned it on the show or not. Can you briefly talk about what your career actually was, what you were doing? Yeah, we're both political consultants and consultants for social causes. So Mark did polling and survey research and 
focus groups, that kind of stuff. And I did more on the communication side. So messaging and different uh, advertising PR for candidates and also social cause campaigns. Like if you ever saw ads for not drunk driving or buckling your seatbelt, there was a good chance that I or some of my colleagues had a hand in that. (laughs) Awesome. Saving lives. (laughs) Favorite one was go belt someone today. I did not have a part in that one. (laughs) (laughs) That was from the early 80s. And they would show people like buckling each other up, but they would sing this go belt someone today. And it was just very funny. I'm so happy we got to hear you sing today. (laughs) Oh, my And But you'll notice like that I think seatbelts are an interesting study to think about because back in the day, all the seatbelt ads were like, oh, you're going to die. Oh, it's going to be terrible. That kind of stuff. And it was in the last decade or so that the messaging really shifted to be about money. Like here's how much the ticket costs and here's how much pay you might lose if you have to take a day off of work to go to court to fight this seatbelt ticket. And I think it's an interesting parallel with kind of the FI movement of like, putting off instead this scary doom and gloom message of like, hey, you're going to retire one day and not have enough money saved, which feels like very far off and abstract to like very immediate terms of you could save that money today and be done working forever in like just a few years. I think that's fair. (laughs) I mostly just want you to sing another jingle, Mindy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's uh, as we progress further, I'm sure I will sing something else. My terrible singing voice. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. You had this passion. Things were going well. You were working long hours, but you know, it sounded like good rewarding work that was fulfilling. When did you decide that you were ready? How did you know that your financial position was approaching that point where you're ready to fight? And what was that mentally like breaking with these careers? Oh gosh, so many things in that question. Uh, We realized math wise that we hit technical FI, you know, that's kind of how I think about it about two years before we actually quit, which just meant like we wouldn't die if we couldn't work. We could cover our basic expenses. We couldn't do much else, but we could at least survive. And knowing that really just helped me mentally get to a place where I felt okay about doing it. The biggest thing that we did is we set a timeline. So we said we were going to quit at the end of 2017, pretty much no matter what. We decided that I think three years before we actually quit. And That was, I couldn't ever share the reason on the blog when we were anonymous why that was, but it was because we didn't want to work another election cycle. So we didn't want to get into the 2018 election. We wanted 2016 presidential year to be our last. And oh my gosh, now with how the world is and how nasty politics has gotten, we're feeling really good about that decision. But that was basically it. We said like, we're going to, we're going to pull the plug at that point. We had a magic number we hoped to hit. We actually exceeded it by a pretty good margin, both because, you know, the markets helped us a little bit, but also just because we were able to save more than we expected. And I think that really helped knowing that we were ahead of our number. And also Mindy, you and I have talked about this before, but it also really helped me personally to know that we had enough that if we had to split up, which we don't plan to do, but like, I think this is not something that's talked about enough in FI circles that if we, for some reason divorced, we could each still be separately financially independent. We wouldn't be um, forced to go back to work by a split. Now that's not to say we could we could live exactly the same lifestyle because certainly you get many economies of scale in a couple. We only have to have one house. We only have to have one set of utility bills and all those things. But we, I, I don't know. I take great comfort knowing that like we'd be okay if, if something unexpected happened in that way. 
I would like to point out that if you split up fairly amicably, you could each separately be FI. I have a friend who's going (laughs) through a really ugly divorce right now. And a lot of his retirement was kind of wiped out because of it, because it, it wasn't an amicable. It was a really ugly. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm so, making a 50 just, assumption. Just yep. don't split up. And then yeah, there no, you no. go. That's not in the plan. <laughs> not to worry. <laughs> but I think the concept is really, is really important and interesting that you, that you've discussed this, it sounds like with your husband and said, Hey, if we do get divorced, because you know, we like, obviously the plan I'm sure is to stay married forever. That's the mm-hmm. or, right. But the numbers out there will say that a significant portion of marriages break up. And it's like, you had this discussion with that in mind, obviously. And do you think that that increases your ability to manage money, your relationship with your significant other, your odds of success, all those kinds of things are. Oh, totally. I think people have this weird superstitious view of divorce that somehow like talking about it makes you more likely to do it. And I think that's crazy. I think like not talking about the possibility of divorce to me feels like a major communication hurdle and and a sign of larger problems in the relationship. And so, yes, I think it's really essential that you talk about it if you're married and that if you're aiming for FI, that you know what your plan is if you should split up. Because I think a lot of folks go into it and just assume sort of the economy of scale number and assume like, okay, 4% rule on our expenses as a couple and don't factor in like, okay, what happens if we split? And I think that's, that's a big mistake because yeah, Scott, as you said, like, what's the current rate? It's lower now for millennials and for Gen X than it was for baby boomers, but it's still almost one in three marriages, right? It's not like this is some rare unicorn event. And I do think it's important to plan for that possibility, even if it's not what you actually hope will happen. I think that's very wise advice. And I think that a lot of people are going to have a lot of trouble taking it and <laughs> acting on it and discussing that. But I think that, that that's something really to consider. I mean, it just sounds like something so important that's so frequently ignored. I agree. And I will say too, one of the questions that I get pretty frequently via email from the blog is guys writing to say, hey, I can't get my wife on board with FI. How can I persuade her? The thing though that I do really try to stress for folks is, you know, you need to actually, if you're trying to convince a partner of this, you need to show them how they will be okay if you don't split up. Because I do actually suspect that's part of what some partners are resisting is this idea like, okay, we're looking at what we spend as a couple and planning this whole future around that. And then saying goodbye to our solid income and our stability and all those things that feel really safe and secure. And I think that feels terrifying to a lot of people. And I think if you can show that instead your plan is based around you guys being okay, kind of no matter what, whether you're together or not, I think that it's so much easier to bring somebody along to the plan. I I think it's great. Um, Can you talk a little bit about where your income comes from nowadays? Is it just all from these investments and index funds or what are the sources of income for you guys? She's retired, Scott. She doesn't have a job anymore. (laughs) Yeah. so right now it's it's funny because we're only a few months in and so we have yet to actually put any of our plans into action but we've always based our plan around not needing to work so not relying on any future outside earned income to be able to get by so we have enough that we could just sell off shares of index funds we actually are a little bit unusual in the FI world of having a two phase retirement so we have mostly just regular taxable index funds that will tap until Mark turns 59 and a half and then we'll shift to selling 401k, which he's now rolled that over to a Vanguard IRA. So selling off tax advantaged 
uh, accounts at that point. And we also will be able to increase our standard of living pretty significantly once we hit kind of traditional retirement age. So we're looking at it as like our leaner early retirement years and then our slightly cushier traditional retirement years. We also do have one rental property that we bought specifically to rent to a relative. And so that's on a 15 year mortgage. And so right now it's pretty much just cash flow neutral, but in about 12 years, it'll be paid off. And then that will be a good chunk of our cash flow. And so that's, that's built in there as well. But I will say right now we're actually doing some fun side stuff. So like I'm doing some paid speaking gigs and Mark's been doing just a couple limited consulting things that have felt really fun. And so we haven't actually had to sell any shares yet. So it is interesting that that does seem to be the path for a lot of people who blog about FI. They, they don't in the end actually end up living off the stuff they put into place. But for me, just being very risk averse, it does help me sleep better at night to know like, okay, even if the market loses 40% tomorrow, we're going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not talked about that. It's so ridiculously, incredibly conservative to retire at a 4% rule before the age of 40 and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to just live off my shares forever. I mean, just nobody that has the hustle or drive to do this seems capable of, of just <laughs> living that way, at least indefinitely. I want to dive into your, what you just talked about here with your two fires. You have one that's lean now and you have another one that's going to advance when you hit retirement age. Would you have accumulated more in the IRA if you could have, if you if you hadn't reached these limits of about, I think it's $18,000 per year? And is the reason why you have this two-pronged approach mostly because you were saving six figures a year, maxing out these accounts, and then had a ton left over? Is that- Yeah, it's a couple factors. So one is we just got a really good head start on the 401ks. And, and when I say we, I really mean Mark, obviously. He started maxing out, I think when he was like 25. And so- by the end of it, his 401k was just very sizable. If you look at maxing plus compounding and all, you know, some good market years in there. And my 401k is definitely a good size because I started maxing after we got together. But yeah, as you said- After that were, first date, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not quite that quickly. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to know because the limits were there. So we didn't really think about like, oh, what if we could save 50,000 a year in tax advantage? Um, for us, it just became sort of a no brainer to say like, okay, well, let's not make ourselves jump through all these hoops of Roth conversions and all of those things and building the ladder and whatnot. I will also say a large part of the logistics of our plan are built around the fact that I'm just super risk averse and I have some healthcare issues in my genes and know that our later years could be extremely expensive. I think that healthcare uncertainty has to be a major concern for anyone thinking about early retirement. And frankly, anyone thinking about traditional retirement. They're now talking about gutting Medicare. And beyond that, Medicare is still expensive anyway. The average Medicare recipient right now is still spending more than a quarter million dollars between when they get on Medicare and when they die. And that's something you got to find the money for. So it has been a great comfort to me. And it's something that let me walk away from work and still sleep at night by knowing that we have a bigger pot of money there for our traditional retirement years. So I think just the idea of like the the conversion ladder wouldn't have appealed to me anyway, because that would mean potentially taking money away from our older selves. So I like having that money there and knowing that we're not touching it for a long time. What's a day in the life like here for, for you now that you've that you've moved on? Like, do you, do you wear pajamas all day? You know, how, how does how do things go? <laughs> yeah, you guys have been nice not to mention that you can see on video that I'm wearing a mouse onesie. Um, <laughs> can you tell me why you're wearing a mouse onesie? Is it because you think it's so cool? 
Uh, no, it's because I slept in this and there was no reason to change clothes. <laughs> oh, I thought it was because you didn't turn your heat up to. It's, it's also because our house is very cold. <laughs> I will say so far, there has been no typical day. We are still trying to figure out if we are going to have any structure in our lives that dictates kind of the flow of things. But yeah, some days we'll get up at like a reasonable, responsible time and We've had days where we're sleeping till noon and just trying to make up for all the sleep we lost in our career. And so, yeah, some days I get up and do a bunch of productive stuff, which is mostly writing and doing stuff for my podcast. And then other days, <laughs> get up and make pancakes and eat them on the couch and watch Netflix all day and try to make up for lost time of all the TV shows people have been telling us for years we needed to watch <laughs> and are behind on. I'm so far mostly through The Crown and The Great British Baking Show. And we also did Westworld, but we're not really past those things yet. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And you've said you haven't been retired very long. Can you remind everybody when you did in fact quit your job and when Mark quit his job? Yeah. So December 15th was his last day. It was mostly my last day. I had to work two days at the very end of the year just to get the 401k match from my company. Uh, so that was a lot of just like tying up loose ends. But yeah, that was almost two months ago. So I think he is 67 days in according to the ticker on the blog. And I'm a couple fewer than that. Okay. But you know what? Working an extra couple of days for your 401k match, totally worth it. Oh yeah. It was like a $6,000 match. Why would you not work two days for that? <laughs> <laughs> and get paid those two days. Oh um, yeah, exactly. I haven't talked to a lot of people, maybe like five or 10 who have quit their jobs. And it seems like there's this like almost six month, sometimes 12 month period where there is this like a large amount of decompression. You know, you may have a couple side projects, but you're really doing exactly what you're talking about and just relaxing, especially when you come from a career that's as demanding as it sounds like you guys just were. But I'll be very interested to see what you guys do next because you are such hustlers and creative people that I could see you working on some cool projects over the next couple of years. So. I'm going to take that as a very big compliment. Thank you. That, yeah, is, a, that is a couple I, of it. Yes. I, I am super excited to see that too. And I, I think it's the same, like the emails that I've gotten from folks or the comments have been that it takes six months to a year to really decompress and figure out your new rhythm. So I would not pretend to be there yet. We are definitely still in the kind of like kids who get to run around the house unsupervised stage of early retirement. <laughs> I will say six months to a year or more. Or more. Yeah. We'll see. Keep some you posted. People, some people that we know have not yet started to decompress. Nice. Well, with that, let's move on to our famous four. These are the same four questions that we ask every guest and some of them are extremely important. So I hope you've planned ahead and are well prepared. <laughs> All right, Mindy, you want to take the first one? Yes. What is your favorite finance book? Uh, your Money or Your Life, no question. That book was super life-changing for me. Seeing your money as an extension of your life force, I think was was totally a game changer and made it very easy for me to not take out the credit card at stores. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great book. Yeah. Awesome. What was your biggest money mistake? You know, I don't think about a lot of stuff as mistakes just because I feel like I've learned from all of my past money behavior. But I definitely think if I had it all to do over again, I would really love to have bought less crap in my early 20s, like stuff that I just thought I needed to make my home look a certain way or things that I bought to try to project a certain image at work, I think was just focusing on the wrong stuff. And so, yeah, I think I'd take some of those purchases off the table. You know, I like that you say that because there are so many people who are 
they have this mindset, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm not frugal. I can't do that because I already made some mistakes. So you made some mistakes, learn from them and move on. Absolutely. I think like, it's so easy to kick ourselves for stuff, but first of all, that just doesn't accomplish anything. I think try to figure out what you can learn from it and then move forward and do the best you can today with the info you have today. Perfect. What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out on their FI journey or on their debt reduction journey? I think the biggest thing that everyone should do is just start tracking where every penny that comes in is going so that you know, because I I think even for people who are very good savers, the biggest thing is like, we just spend a lot of money mindlessly. And I know that this is talked about endlessly in the latte factor. And I would not tell anybody to cut out lattes if that is the best part of your day. Like having that coffee is like your big relief from stress. Like, great, keep doing it. But once you actually know where all your money's going, you can actually look at it and say like, okay, these are the things that are bringing me happiness. These are the things that are adding no value to my life. And then it's so easy to cut that stuff out. But if you just say like, okay, I have to save $500 a month, that's a really hard abstract place to start. And it's hard to find that money. But if you start from the spending side, looking at it, what brings joy and what doesn't, it's so much easier. I I absolutely agree with that. Scott, your favorite question. This is my, this is my favorite question. Uh, (laughs) What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? I was hoping you guys would forget to ask this question. Never. (laughs) Never. Um, You know, I'm more of an observational humor type. (laughs) I don't have any actual jokes, but I always can like find some zinger when like somebody's doing something funny. Yes. You're very, you're very clever. Well, in that case, I'm going to shout out a listener who sent me a very nice note right here to the office. Uh, And at the bottom of that note, he had a PS, which was, what did one ocean say to the other ocean? Nothing. I have no idea. It just waved. Ah! (laughs) We'll go with that one. (laughs) That's such a uh, dad joke. (laughs) Thank you to Ben. Uh, uh, I appreciate that, Ben. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Now you're going to get people sending you jokes. So when our, <laughs> if you've got a really great joke, send them to Scott. What yeah, uh, email address do you want to put? <laughs> send them to Scott at biggerpockets.com or you can mail them to the office if you want to be creative like Ben. And I will give you a full name mention if you give me permission to do so. I'm not mentioning this person's last name because I don't know if they want me to shout that over the air. But <laughs> I love jokes. So then when our guests cannot come up with one, Scott will read your amazing, wonderful, fabulous, super funny joke. But enough with the jokes. Where can people find out more about you, Tanya? The main place to go is ournextlife.com. And there you can link to all the social stuff. I especially do Twitter, which is at our underscore next life. And you can link over to the podcasts. So far, just the fairer sense is up, which is a podcast I do that's mostly for women with my friend Kara Perez. And Mark and I have another one that will probably be launching this summer called Adventures in Early Retirement. So stay tuned. Ooh, that's going to be a good one. Yeah. It's not going to be financial at all. It's going to be silly because we can't help it. We're just silly. That's great. But just be fun things you can do as early retirees with millions of travel miles. Indeed. Which you can can also rack up without having to fly all that by credit card hacking for folks that are listening. So, Yes, but it's, it's better when your employer pays for it and then gives you the points. I actually worked for somebody who wouldn't let us keep the points. That is so unfair. I I have just like a moral problem with that because you're doing all the butt in seat miles and like you're away from home. You should have a little bit of benefit from it. Yep. I don't work for them anymore. (laughs) Good good move. (laughs) 
All right. Well, Scott, shall we get out of here? We don't want to keep you any more than uh, you need to. We we know that you have a busy day full of sitting around in a mouse onesie. <laughs> I know. I really need to get back to the couch, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Learned a ton from you and appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. It's always great talking to you guys and such a delight to be here. Thank you for your time. Now go back and watch, uh, what is it? The British cooking show? Yeah. The Great British Baking Show. The Great British Baking Show. Ooh, mm-hmm. I haven't heard of that one. We have it's different tastes, one. sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, thank All you right. very much. Thank you, Tanya. Have a good day. All right. That was Tanya from Our Next Life. Uh, great episode. What'd you think, Mindy? I love Tanya. I met her a couple of years ago and I love her story. I love that she wasn't a frugal person. She was able to do this anyway. She never felt deprived and she led the life she wanted to leave while she was working. And now she has her whole life ahead of her. She can lead whatever life she wants to lead now just by making a few simple tweaks. I mean, they were making six figures each and living on six figures in LA. That doesn't seem like a real big sacrifice. No, they, I mean, they, it sounded like focused on their career. They had, they were doing everything else right. They were keeping their expenses reasonable. They had a a smart investing plan. You know, it sounded like they had some side projects that they were ready to dive into when they did leave full-time work, but it sounded like they worked really hard in their careers and allowed them to scale and took advantage of that and all the perks that came with it, like the travel miles and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The travel miles that pile of miles that they're sitting on right now. I'm a little bit jealous. I, I got to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I hope that that episode was really relevant for people that are living in these high cost of living areas. And, you know, the trade-off with that is you are probably going to need a solid career with a lot of upside potential. If you are in one of these areas, if you want to pursue a path like Tanya uh, and her husband, Mark, but it is achievable and there should be those opportunities, maybe in greater abundance on the career front in those markets than maybe some other places where there's a lower cost of living. Yes, it is achievable and you don't have to feel deprived all the time. I know I have mentioned Jacob from Early Retirement Extreme before and he chose to be very extreme in his early retirement and that's his choice. That's what he wanted to do. It was worth it to him. Tanya said, you know what? This isn't worth it to me. I'm going to go have a $500 a person meal and I don't regret it at all. But she wasn't harming her future by having that one meal. I think if she did that every single day, she'd soon run out of those uh, lean FI funds and would have to start dipping into some other savings. I really want this meal. <laughs> I'll ask her what the name of the restaurant again. I can't remember. SoFi, so, so me, so me. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll Something have to check in it New out. York. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. All okay, right. well, Scott. Well, before we get out of here, I'd love to just remind everybody to leave us a rating or review on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. We appreciate them. We read every single one. They matter to us. We take your feedback. So please do uh, give us one of those ratings or reviews. Yes, please leave us a rating and review. That's how our show gets spread. That's how we show up in the new and noteworthy on iTunes. And that's how you show up in the top business podcasts. I think we're in the top 100 business podcasts, which is kind of sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. From episode 13 of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, this is Mindy Jensen, over and out.
The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.